On this episode of Wild in the Streets, Franco Nero is beaten and embarrassed during a robbery and turns into a revenge-fueled vigilante in Enzo G. Castellari's Street Law, Comenciano. Welcome to Wild in the Streets, a deep dive into the Eurocrime films of the 1970s and beyond. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as always is the citizen rebel Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Oh, I'm rebelling in my citizenship? I don't, are I you don't then? Know. No. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm good, Doug. It's it's a, it's a cold day at a time of year where it shouldn't be cold, so you know I'm a little bit bummed. But other than that, I'm good. I, now, you live near Chicago, the Windy City. I do. Is it noticeably colder there than it was back in Pennsylvania, where you uh, your stomping grounds, let's say? Beyond noticeably, a, a whole other world of cold, right. just a, a new dimension. To to give you an idea, I have a friend here in Chicago who grew up in Chicago, but who I know because he lived for like a decade in Philadelphia uh, as an adult. And when he moved to Philadelphia, he uh, got rid of all his winter coats because he knew he wouldn't need them. Wow. And when he moved back to Chicago, the first thing he bought, even before he had an apartment, he was crashing on a friend's couch, he bought winter coats because he knew that that's what he needed above anything But, like, else. you got snow on the ground back in Philadelphia, right? It's, I mean, don't get me wrong, Doug, I'm a summer baby, so as far as I'm concerned- I know you are. <laughs> Philly, Philly gets, as, uh, Philly gets as, uh, as cold as I think it should ever get, but that doesn't change the fact that it is- significantly different here you know like the you you hopefully are familiar with the famous prince song sometimes it snows in april right Uh uh-huh and to me that's like a like that's a that's a horrible thing like it snows in april yeah what a bummer and then here it's just like normal like if i was just like oh man because it did in fact snow this morning um people are like yeah of course it's it's only april you know sometimes it snows in may what are you talking about liam we're here to talk about Eurocrime films i don't know if you're aware of this (laughs) Oh, not, we are. Not, not the weather. Um, and uh, this episode marks a kind of an interesting uh, shift for us where it's our first time talking about an Enzo Castellari film. And it's our first time talking about a film that stars Franco Nero, an actor I think both of us are pretty darn familiar with. Django. Has had, yeah, Django. I mean, I, I'm actually a huge Spaghetti Western fan. And I remember the first time I saw Django and I was just blown away. And this was before it's kind of... Um, I was going to say before it's mainstream recognition. That's not the case. What I should say it before it's kind of mainstream United States recognition, because obviously Django sure, is a yeah. hugely popular film uh, internationally. And Franco Nero is an actor that I recognize from that. But also, honestly, he's an actor that I best know as a kid from Enter the Ninja, uh, a movie that I watched many right. times. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Die Hard 2 and things like that. I mean, he's certainly a recognizable face. Uh, but this is the first time that we're going to be co- uh, covering him on this show. I want to get your thoughts, Liam, on Franco Nero generally. What do you know him from? What do you think of him as an actor? And maybe as a human being. Let's hear that, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let's stay positive and focus on him as an actor first. Um, yeah, I primarily know him from Enter the Ninja and uh, Django, which I uh, I managed to see early on just from having nerdy friends, you know? Sure. And mm-hmm. then, you know, uh, it, it, it kind of became one of those – that's one of those spaghetti westerns that, like, not losers know about. You know what I mean? Like, normal <laughs> people have heard of it, you know? Uh, but, you know, he's – as we've said before, I think we both are not entirely new, but coming in slightly new to these Polizia Tecci films. And yeah. so, like, he's not in a lot, but he's in a fair number. And I realized I'd only seen a few. In fact, this is the craziest part, Doug. Uh, I've seen today's movie before. Huh. I saw it on film. At, oh. an ex, at an X-Fest, the sec, I think it was the second X-Fest ever. But what I learned watching it, Doug, is that I fell asleep during significant portions of this film <laughs> and uh, could not remember a lot of the details. And in fact, the only part that hit me, the only parts that hit me like, oh, I've seen this before, was the very beginning and the very end. That whole scene in the big garage, the way the film ends, 
I knew every moment of it. And I thought, I must have woke up right before. Because everything that happened leading up to that big showdown, I couldn't remember a second. I couldn't remember what... It was like I was watching an entirely new movie, and I thought... Oh, I must have fallen. Because, you know, it's a 12-hour marathon. Hey, and I get it. Believe me. Yeah. There, there are moments when I've been in, at, um, at at marathons, uh, at theaters, where even when I'm awake for it, I wouldn't be able to recount details if it's like yeah. eight, nine hours into it. Right. And that's my issue is that in my mind, I've seen this movie. And then watching it for this podcast, I was like, oh, no, I haven't seen this movie. I haven't <laughs> seen the important parts, the plot of this movie I haven't seen. So, uh, but, you know, I I knew he was in a variety of things. But looking uh, at, at, you know, his list of work, it's a lot more stuff I've never seen before that I that I know about. Um, and only some of the more modern things. Like I've, I've obviously seen John Wick Chapter 2 or right. Die Hard 2, you know. Sure. But a lot of the early stuff, it, he was in a lot of things that I just <laughs> Sorry, didn't know. I just want to say that, that, that one of your examples of a modern thing is from 30 years ago. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've obviously seen the Django remake, which he's also in as well. But, uh, uh, you know, there, there's... There's a lot of stuff that from like let's say his golden age that like I feel like I should know that I just haven't seen. Yeah, I've seen some of his other spaghetti westerns like Kilma and, and Compañeros, but I mean it's it's that's what usually when I think of Franco Nero, I still think of him as a western actor. But yeah, he did he did everything right. I mean, he did Gialli, he did uh, obviously he did uh, uh, Eurocrime, Pliskotesky, um, and and. We get a real. I mean, he's the star of the show here. He very much is the only actor of note. Even though, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about the movie in a second, and, and so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But I mean, he's he at this point was uh, the level of celebrity that could carry a movie. So, but what do you think of him as an actor, or is that hard a hard thing to judge? Because even in something like Django, right, where his voice is dubbed in the version that most of us are familiar with, um, it you know you you don't really get a sense of his performance it's really his look that really stands out because you know he has those piercing blue eyes very distinctive looking actor but do you think of him as a strong actor i do actually i think i think um even in the dubbed versions of django there's a certain amount of charisma that comes across regardless and that's and again i haven't seen everything he's in but in the films i've seen of him even as an older man there's a certain amount of charisma that's there, and it it uh it's a little frustrating because I don't know how I feel about him as a dude, <laughs> but as a as a performer, I think he's still pretty strong. I mean, he's getting pretty old at this point, but a lot of his work that I've seen is really strong, even if it's a small role or if it's the major role. Now, I do think this is this is a phenomenon we can talk about and probably have talked about a little bit before in a lot of movies the leading role isn't necessarily the juiciest role. You know, there are all kinds of side characters, both villainous and not, that tend to be more interesting. And so sometimes I think he's asked to be not bland, but at least relatable or or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So in a movie like this, for example, I think he's given opportunities in the movie we're going to discuss today to do some like more emotional acting and i think he's pretty good at it actually which you know he's not always asked to do Django, there's not a ton of emoting per se uh there's a lot more of him looking menacing you know uh, but i think when he's given the opportunity to expand he's he's not a chameleon he's not someone who like has a different look for every movie or something crazy like that but i do think he brings a variety of things to the table where uh, there's a little more depth to characters that could be very surfacey or very not interesting. Especially if you don't know about Street Law and you think yeah. it's going to be like a Charles Bronson performance, which is what I thought going into it. It's just going to be like, oh, he's going to be like steely-eyed. That's what the whole – but that's not what it is. I mean, this is a guy who gets his ass beaten constantly and is usually in a fractured emotional state both uh, pre and post that occurring. So, yeah, well, I mean, we'll talk about him in this movie in just a little bit. Uh, you, we, you've danced around. We've danced around, I should say, a little bit in regards to what we think of him as a person. I don't have any specific insight into Franco Nero as a human being, whether he is a good or bad person, if you can even uh, you know categorize it in that way. Uh, the only reason I have uh, mixed feelings about him is uh, his recent announcement that he wanted to make a movie, uh, directing a movie, I believe, starring Kevin Spacey, specifically because, I don't know, uh, I mean, it, it feels like the, his, his motivations behind it are not necessarily pure, let's say. Uh, what about yourself? What, why, why do you feel a little mixed on Franco Nero as a human being? 
Well, I think in general I wouldn't need to bring stuff up because though I've heard him say conservative stuff in the past or stuff that seems kind of whack to me, uh, it's not so – he's not one of these people out there constantly running his mouth like, because I'm an actor, everyone should know what I think about this or that At least not issue. in this country for all we know, right? That's true. Maybe he's more in Italy. But internationally, I don't hear from him that much. In the case of this movie, I have to bring up that I have heard him say whack-ass stuff because if any of our audience is watching this movie – on the Blu-ray and they watch the special features, there's an interview where he specifically says the only difference between when he made this movie and today is that all the criminals in Italy are foreigners from more poor European nations. And so the the issue of crime is still an issue, but Italians don't do crime anymore. It's just all those foreigners. And so like, you know, normally it's like, okay, I hear this dude sucks, but it's not a current issue. But the reality is anyone who is, listening to this episode and it's like oh i'm gonna buy this blu-ray i mean the blu-ray was like on sale recently from code red so maybe you bought the blu-ray and you haven't watched it yet and you pop it in and you enjoy the movie and that's great and then you watch the special features and you find out that uh you know uh franco nero is at at best xenophobic like that's the best thing you could say i like how it's a very specific kind of italian xenophobia that we you know we wouldn't necessarily connect to but it's all the same sort of talking points still yeah it's it's exactly the way that Americans would talk about Mexicans, but he's talking about Bulgarians and Albanians, you know? Yeah. And it's very awkward. And it starts the interview. It's how he starts the conversation. And you're like, oh, God, really? All right. Yeah, let's let's talk about the movie. And then the rest of the interview is okay. I, di- I didn't finish it, actually, uh, but um, I watched most of it. And, you know, it's just him telling stories. It's fine. I still think it's worth watching. But it's just awkward to start the conversation with his deep, feeling that you know that this issue is still like we still need vigilantes doug because of all the foreigners in italy and that is not my favorite take that i've heard of late now granted I, that doesn't make him a bad person i i think i think uh, I, i'm not quite making that strong a moral judgment i just think it's clear that we would strongly disagree on some pretty essential issues <laughs> um there there is a political side to this film i mean in really in all of the films that we've talked about there is a political element but there's one that's kind of very specific to this movie we'll talk about it once we get into it i just want to br- mention briefly that this is not the first film that franco nero and enzo g castellari worked together on uh they first worked on another uh, Poliziotesky, um, uh, which we'll cover, I'm sure, at some point as well. That was a huge financial success in Italy, so they uh, reconvened and made this film, uh, which was another massive success at the time. And it kind of kicked off another subgenre. Now, it's important to note that this movie was released in Italy before Death Wish was, and it does not seem to be influenced, I don't think, directly by Death Wish. I mean, we are going to probably, in fact, almost certainly cover on this podcast movies that were specifically influenced by the massive financial success of Death Wish and probably take a little bit of a harder edge and maybe kind of a more straightforward edge in terms of the vigilante subgenre. But because this kind of came before it, it doesn't have that... Like I said, he's not a Charles Bronson character in this. It goes into places I was not expecting whatsoever. It's a much stranger film than I was prepared sure, for. I yeah. thought it was going to be very straight ahead, especially because like even the first 10 minutes of it sort of sets up a kind of movie that you don't really get afterwards. It's also not as action-packed as I thought, but in some ways it, it, it works better because of that. I, you know, I've teased a lot of what my thoughts are on this enough. Let's take a break, Liam. Let's come back. We're going to talk about 1974's Street Law. Don't anybody move! This is a hold up! Anybody moves, I get hurt! Hold it! I said, don't pull! You're not gonna pull anything! Shut up! Kill you! Kill you! Shut up! Kill you! Stop her! Stop her! Kill you! You're not going anywhere! Let's go! Get a move on! You're coming with us! Dozens of robberies a day. We can't put a policeman on every corner. Criminals like that shoot to kill. We should never provoke them. I was frightened and humiliated. You have no idea how frightened I was. I know they were armed, but it was more than that. It's a question of self-respect. I'll kill them if I find them. You gone crazy? You think it's that easy to make a contact in the underworld? They can smell you a mile away. That gang generally hits three banks in a row. While the police race to the first bank, they're already robbing the second one. 
then they hit the third. Carlo Antonelli, an engineer from Genoa, gets mugged and decides to take justice into his own hands. At first, the muggers seem to get the upper hand, but then he's helped by Tommy, a young robber who takes his side. A badly written <laughs> summary of the film Street Law from 1974, a.k.a. Revenge, or The Anonymous Avenger in the UK, uh, directly translated from its title, Il Cittadino C. Rebella. The Citizen Rebels, that's why I referred to you as a Citizen Rebel at the beginning, Liam. Directed by the great Enzo G. Castellari. Probably genre fans would know his name, most most specifically because he did, I was going to say the original version of The Inglorious Bastards. For anyone who's seen that film, they know that really it's just the title that it shares with Quentin Tarantino's film, but also a very entertaining war film. Uh, the Last Shark, the uh, the incredible ripoff of Jaws that uh, ended up uh, getting taken out of circulation. And of course, his post-apocalyptic movies like 1990, The Bronx Warrior, the New Barbarians and Escape from the Bronx but he did really all genres just like a lot of Italian directors at that time period uh, worked in westerns worked in uh, Eurocrime worked in all sorts of different stuff written by Massima Darita a name that we've seen before he was actually the writer of The Violent Four aka Bandits in Milan which we've covered on Wild in the Streets previously Starring Franco Nero as Carlo Antonelli, Giancarlo Prete, who, uh, who's actually quite good in this, probably the only other notable uh, performance in the movie because most of them are kind of one note uh, in terms of who we see. The only other notable name here is Barbara Bach, uh, probably best known as a Bond girl in The Spy Who Loves Me, and also currently still best known as the wife <laughs> of Ringo Starr. Uh, very small part for her here, a little bit surprising. On the commentary for the film, the original commentary featuring William Lustig and Enzo G. Castellari, they actually mentioned that uh, Lustig's film Vigilante was inspired by this, and they would start laughing together because it was actually, uh, this film when released in the U.S. was sometimes titled Vigilante 2, suggesting that there was a direct <laughs> connection between the two of them, which is pretty amusing. Liam, as I said in the opening, this movie is very different than I was expecting. I feel like I've said that a few times on this show, and I think I need to kind of start removing my expectations that whatever we're going to be watching in terms of these Eurocrime movies are going to have kind of a Western perspective, that it's going to fit very neatly into kind of conservative or liberal values and things like that, because the the summary of this movie would suggest that it very much would be like a death wish type movie a guy gets beaten up he he uh thinks that crime is rampant the police aren't doing anything he grabs a gun and heads out into the street but that's not really what this is at all and i'm really curious about your take liam what did you think of 1974's street law i mean i think it's really great i think if you think too deeply about its <laughs> politics yeah you might end up being like this is kind of fucked up but the film kind of knows that and i will say that the part of perspective it takes which i think fits with a rational right so someone on the on the right who is maybe less of an american might say <laughs> the problem with vigilantes isn't just that it's against the system it's that people wouldn't be very good at it. They're not trained to be violent. They're not trained to be investigators. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. So even if they end up in some sense victorious at some point, it'll be a fucking disaster, which is why, and this is where it is deeply, I think, right wing. That's why you need the police state. And, and to me, this is what separates this movie from some of the other movies. I suspect some of the movies that have a similar attitude towards the current police regime in Italy in the 70s sure. are by leftists who aren't sure that police are necessary or who at least think it needs to be the whole system needs to be reformed. Right. Um, I think in that sense. This film, and to be fair, we don't know Castellari's politics per se. Like, I don't know what his motivation was, but the way the film works, it feels a little bit more of a of a of a traditional take on uh, society. But it is still very skeptical of the police because of corruption. And unlike in the U.S., where it's like every individual American could take up a gun and actually murder a street gang, in this movie, it's like, nah, he sucks at this. Actually, and he, and, he, and it's not just that he is unskilled as an investigator and as a doer of violence, he also just isn't emotionally prepared for how taxing this all is. And the idea, I mean, in the end, he ends up making friends with a criminal who he then kind of uh, uses for his own purposes. Yep. And in a sense, you could really argue that at the end of the movie, his friend who's a criminal is far more moral than he is in a lot yes, of ways. absolutely. And so, like, you know, I don't think that's a mistake of the narrative. Like, the guy just... Do whatever. I think it's like it, it. It's a narrative in which I don't think there's there's 
the same criticism of the system overall per se, but right. there is a deep feeling of like corruption hurts citizens. And that should be a point that whether you are a uh, a person who sees themselves or on the left or a person who sees themselves on the right, I would hope we could all get on the same page that corruption seems like a real bad idea, huh? Like it's one of the one of the inherent flaws of a police state is that with money criminals can manipulate it to get what they want. I think we should all think that's probably not a great thing. You know, that's probably a, a negative aspect of society. So I don't think the politics of it affect the movie so much, and it allows for a very nuanced performance from Franco Nero. His character is very angry. And that anger in another movie would translate to pure violence. But the reality is just because he's angry doesn't mean he's tough. He's never had to do anything like this before. He's never had to like threaten people or face a group of people who want to kick his ass or whatever it is, you know? So like it's a much more grounded uh, 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 presentation on this thing. Like, what if someone did decide that they're going to get revenge? It would be messy. It would be difficult. And it would be emotionally taxing. He has a lot of scenes where he's just, like, breaking down, upset yeah. at how Absolutely. hard I can't even is. respond because yeah. he's so traumatized. Yeah. And I think that's another thing, by the way. It's, it's a word I used at the very beginning of the podcast is that he is embarrassed he gets beaten and and kidnapped during this this uh, robbery at the beginning of the movie, and it, it's as much an affront to his masculinity as it is. Oh, I'm angry at the system. I'm angry that the police can't do anything. He feels like he needs to do something as a man, as much as anything, and that is kind of his undoing for much of the movie. It's just like, oh, I'm smarter than these people. All I need to do is find the people in the way that the police can't do it. I'm going to go and do it, and he just gets embarrassed again and again and it makes him angrier and angrier as he goes through it but like you said he goes through this wild array of emotions in a way that like you know i i've already mentioned death wish several times but like this as i also have already said this is not a charles bronson performance this isn't him just kind of stealing against the system the other thing is of course that the way that the police are presented here if it was an american movie it would be oh the law is too soft right? You lock these criminals up, they're immediately back on the street. And there's a sense of that here as well. But for him, it's just like, oh, they're too lazy. They could be doing something, but they don't want to rock the boat. They're unwilling to do it unless things get really, really bad. So he basically has to push the police into action at some point. But that that really kind of reinforces what you're saying, though, right? The movie's main suggestion is the police need to do their job and their job should be just arresting every criminal on the street because that's better than you know (laughs) investigating and trying to get to the top Uh, i think he even voices it in the movie it's like you don't arrest the small criminals because you're going to need their information later on which you know what is probably true (laughs) i mean that's that's probably a pretty reasonable way to do things because the little guys are, are just desperate right and I think in some way the movie is sympathetic to it because we actually get to know one of the smaller criminals. And he right. does seem like a pretty decent guy in the movie. And certainly is a lot more kind of directly charismatic on screen and, you know, because of the character than um, than uh, Franco Nero's character. Yeah, I think that's true. I think also that it's worth noting that the film never resolves for us who in the police is corrupt. And I think yes. I think that's actually an ideological decision because then there's a bad guy. If there's one cop who's the one who's informing to the criminals, then you just go, well, that guy sucks. By making it anonymous, we never know which cops are on the take are on the take and which cops are uh, trustworthy but maybe not great at their jobs. Then we just see the whole thing as an issue, as opposed to focusing on individuals. And it's not like in some of the other films we've seen, which have a couple of like it might not be focused on the police. But you'll get a few scenes of the police being like, hey, our hands are tied. The criminals, you know, they run the city, that sort of thing. There's no real suggestion there. It's just that when he goes to them and accuses them of being lazy. Also, they they bring up that law that they must have been actually had in Italy at the time that you're not allowed to, like, insult a police officer that you could be arrested for it. Which is (laughs) kind of a funny law to think about in our particular world. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, But but just the idea that that, uh, we don't know... The reason that they are quote unquote lazy or unwilling to do their job, that there's probably a whole bunch of different factors. But Franco Nero isn't really interested in the nuance of it. Uh, his character is just like, okay, I'm going to do the job that you can't do. And let's just go through the plot because it's a very simplistic plot. So he decides to kind of visit the underworld, immediately embarrasses himself, tries to tail criminals, 
they they recognize him right away they they destroy his car tell him to get the hell out of there and the only way he can kind of weasel his way into the underworld is by taking photos of this low-level criminal uh, it do, doing a crime and blackmailing him into uh getting him guns and and basically getting him closer to the three people who um who assaulted him at the beginning of the movie because that's all he really cares about is sort of getting his revenge on them and then he becomes friends with the guy that he's blackmailing in a weird kind of turn of things. And then it ends up, of course, going into dark places at the end of the movie. But it, again, all these weird twists and turns. I like the idea that he's an engineer. That's kind of his trade, even though we don't actually get to see him do much of that work. So the only thing that he has advantageous over these criminals is that he has a mind that thinks in a very specific way. So he comes up with a plan. I'm going to blackmail this guy into buying me guns and to getting me connections to the criminal underworld but totally different from from how say a, a likely a western movie would tackle the same sort of subject matter it is very essential for at least american movies and i would say other films that are borrowing from american movies too that the main character show grit because yeah. grit is how you de determination toughness willingness to suffer and like he has some of that. Like, he's definitely tenacious, but you could argue that the film kind of suggests that if he was a little less tenacious, this whole process could have gone a little easier, right? That I don't think he wins, like, a, a fist fight in the entire movie, right? No. He's always on the... And, and barely, you know, he doesn't really win any sort of gunfight either. It's just... No. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, even, yeah. You're right. Even the end, it's like like when he, he manages to catch some of these criminals... Like, he... he it wins this gunfight technically but every time he gets a shot in on one of these guys it's usually because they're trying to kill his friend or trying to shoot him and they expose themselves in a way that's kind of stupid yeah and he catches them but it's never like because he's good at this it's like he just happens and he has a fucking shotgun and like in the 70s um through the 90s everyone thought shotguns were rocket launchers so if you shot a <laughs> shotgun you'd blow a whole wall apart which is like kind of true but kind of not true but uh, you know i don't think anyone i mean i guess if you're super obsessed with gun accuracy you might find that part of this movie a little ridiculous <laughs> but honestly like i didn't care at all it's like yeah he's got a shotgun so he's gonna blow up boxes and shit that's fine <laughs> it's great yeah. i love it i love when the shotgun makes an appearance yeah. in the final scene it really changes the dynamic a little bit i want to talk a little bit about specific parts of the movie specifically starting with the opening sequence of the movie basically it starts with a scene of these criminals burning uh, a house down. Uh, we will later find out that it actually is an event from later in the film. Um, and actually, I guess in, in some versions of this movie, this sequence is actually cut entirely, um, mostly for time, uh, because they wanted this movie to run 90 minutes instead of uh, closer to 100, which is what it does. But then that is followed by this incredible uh, opening title sequence, which has all of these crimes happening around the city. Uh, according to the director, they uh, the producer didn't want him to shoot this, so what they he'd do is uh, a little like every day he would just shoot one little sequence using the stuntman without any permission whatsoever, just so he'd have this kind of montage at the beginning. The montage is great; it's super violent. It's people just being shot on the street, all these different crimes, but it really gets his idea across that. That, that crime is out of control, that people are doing it with impu impunity, but it's also just really great action. Any thoughts on the opening of the film, Liam? It's great, and it makes the recurring musical cue have, yes. have meaning to it because there's a few times when that musical cue just feels like maybe extra, but it, it, it's actually because we have the association with it of this utter chaos of violence and anarchy, then that musical cue, when it comes in later, it has a meaning to it we get a feeling of what we're supposed to be, be thinking about at those moments let's let's actually move on to that for a second the the soundtrack of this movie is sort of controversial some people feel like it doesn't fit the movie whatsoever it's certainly very noticeable particularly that main theme that you just mentioned uh, any thoughts on the soundtrack of this movie it's done by uh guido de angelis and Maurizio de angelis who did a lot of music for films in that time period uh it kind of centers around two songs and the, the the musical themes from those songs and i have to say i always find it kind of amusing when those songs play because you get this like heavily accented english language uh singing in it and it's kind of it, it, it's almost like that uh, famous italian song where it's just sounds that are meant to sound like english as opposed to actually english language it's hard to know what the songs are actually about but they're certainly very catchy and very distinctive what did you think of uh, the soundtrack of the movie 
I'll be honest, Doug. I didn't notice most of it except for that, huh. except for that that musical cue from the beginning. That that what is that like a guitar? There's like a there's like a like a guitar lick that plays over all the violence at the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, th- that's the only part of this I remember in any way. Nothing else stuck out to me, and I think for me that part sticks out because it's fucking epic. I love yeah. that that music for that beginning is in my mind perfect like it, it nothing could work better in in my brain than that does the rest of the movie didn't notice the music it didn't stick out to me one way or the other maybe i was too focused on franco nero's beautiful blue eyes i don't know <laughs> uh, uh, but i nothing else that nothing else was at a point where i was like oh right this you know i i probably should go back and pay more attention to it honestly so I guess the song that is playing in the opening credits it's called Goodbye My Friend and like if you get the soundtrack to this it's basically just like 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 nine different versions of this one song and you know different this, the one with lyrics like I've already mentioned a lot of it is the instrumental version there's a slow version there's a rock version and it just plays repeatedly throughout the film but like you said there is that kind of association with crime that's that comes from the opening credits um but the other thing is I think I already mentioned is that this movie isn't that violent, right? I mean, it's it's there's certainly a threat of violence all throughout it, but that opening uh, credits that is the most gunplay with actual squibs and stuff that you usually see uh, right up until the final uh, gun gun battle that takes place in the factory at the very end, um, and and it does set up a kind of movie that this movie isn't going to be, but that's fine because it it kind of it gets your blood flowing right away. Uh, any other kind of action sequences aside from the uh, end of the film that kind of stick out to you, Liam? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a number of scenes where just it's just Frank O'Neill getting his ass kicked. Yes. that actually are pretty good. You know, even like the the scene, like the final gun scene is in this giant warehouse. But before yeah. that, they kind of come for him in this basement apartment. Yes, even yeah, yeah, yeah. that, even that was very tense. It's technically the scene before, right? And it's yeah, it's very tense. Again, it's it's not action like. It's not super exciting, but you still feel the tension of it all. You know, it's not like highly choreographed martial arts, but it is something where you're like, oh, fuck, they're going to throw gas in there. Like, he's fucked. Like, there, there is a lot to really make the scene pretty gripping. Um, other than that, there wasn't a ton of other things. I guess there's the part uh, where um, he is going after the guy in the car in the like construction site. Yeah, that's a really strange part too, where it's basically yeah. the, there's a guy chasing down Franco Nero with his car because he's he's basically escaping yeah, from these criminals. Yeah. yeah, it's done really like it, it it switches from slow motion to regular speed. It's done really well. I will say it looks like Franco Nero is literally running for his life in those sequences. Uh-huh, uh-huh. My understanding is that he did a lot of his own stunts in this, and and I mean someone's taking quite a beating from that car in those scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's that whole thing is done pretty well. I, I, the mem- most memorable part for me is when it looks like actually Franco Nero hits a moving car with a shovel yeah. to like get the guy. It that didn't look like a stunt double, which I'm like, that in and of itself is pretty fucking dangerous. Like you hit that car wrong, and that shovel's coming back at you in a really bad way. <laughs> so you know, but like you know, I I say all that to say there's not a ton of like running and gunning in this movie like you'd think no. there might be more because of the genre but it, it, it's it's a lot more investigating conversations that's right it's a lot more sitting in the dark watching yeah. people from afar and a lot of franco nero being threatened or getting his ass kicked honestly <laughs> uh there is one notable car chase in the film though after the post office robbery uh that that where franco nero is uh kidnapped and brought in with the criminals there's this uh terrific um car chase that happens afterwards a car chase that looks l- legitimately kind of dangerous because there's like crowded streets we've seen this before in some of the films that we've covered on wild in the streets that that uh some of these car chases i don't know how they do it necessarily in a way that's safe and maybe it's not safe there's one part of it in particular where a motorcycle uh, a motorcyclist i should say crashes into a police car and he goes flying from it and that looked very dangerous he goes kind of head over heels and then they cut to him just kind of landing sort of safely but I don't think the original stunt had him landing very safely at all. Uh, any thoughts on that car chase? Yeah, it's it's very well done. Um, but I think it's is that the only, I feel like that's the only car chase in the movie. Right? I believe it's certainly the only car chase of note for sure. Yeah, yeah, but it's good. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, 
It's it's kind of like this movie has a lot of its action front loaded, right? I mean, it's it's really. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Keep people like really invested in the first twenty minutes or so, and then kind of ease into the uh, the plot as a whole. Speaking of the plot as a whole, it really revolves around Franco Nero as Carlo Antonelli. We get a little bit of his relationship with his partner. I guess she's his girlfriend, uh, Barbara, played by Barbara Bach. Uh, she's only in like three scenes in the entire movie, and their relationship is a little fraught. Liam, what, how is it fraught? Would you say? Oh, uh, I mean, besides the fact that he uh, assaults her when she criticizes him because she doesn't think he should be going on a path of revenge, he slaps her in the face. Yeah, it's bad. It's real bad. And then later he apologizes and she's like, ah, don't worry about it. And then like they have no other scenes together for like the rest of the movie. It's a really strange inclusion, especially since Barbara Bach, I think, is um, is second build in the movie. She's barely in it. I will say that one thing I was glad about is is there's a part in the movie where uh, Franco Nero is palling around with his criminal friend and they're like getting into stuff. And he arrives back at his house to find that it's, or his apartment, to find that it's burning. And I'm like, oh, shit, they're going to use this. They're going to have killed her off. But no, they don't. And then later I'm like, oh, they're going to kidnap her and probably sexually assault her, as we've seen in several movies so far. Nope. She is a non-entity in this movie entirely, which was oddly refreshing. But, of course, they still had to have a weird bit of... um, of violence against her early in the movie. It's just a really strange decision to have him, but it also kind of reinforces, hey, this guy's fucked up, right? This guy is is traumatized by what has happened to him, and maybe you should not ad, uh, admire what he's going through at this point. Yeah, that's true. I do think that is one of the things that we said, but I want to put a specific point on, which is that this movie is not like, oh, man, look how amazing it is that this is happening. It's very much like, this is horrible, and, and like, clearly this dude is not, like, doing well, you know? Yeah, it's it's one of those... It, it's funny to think that this might have been so successful that it was one of the things that helped inspire a lot of movies like this, because I think the even if you take the final, like, the very end of the movie where we see Frank Nero's character see someone else complaining to the police and basically saying, hey, if you guys don't do something, I'm going to go out and do something. Even if you see that as a positive thing and that the main message of this movie is if that that you that people should go out and do what Frank Nero does in this, it does not make it look very romantic. It does not look, make it look like a fun thing to do. He basically, like I said, has his life destroyed. He even has to, in order to prompt the police, and this is kind of the weird um, uh, the final act thing that happens in the movie, the in order to prompt the police into action, he has to stage his own kidnapping, with the suggestion that he has collected so much information about the criminal underworld, he records them all on cassette tapes and then hides them around this office so the police can find them. And then knowing that they're going to get leaked to the press, it's a really strange way of instead of showing he's successful as a vigilante, no. He has to investigate and he has to collect information and basically threaten to to embarrass the police. And that is what prompts them to go out and do the work that they should have been doing previously. Very strange. Very, uh, you know, the message of of what people are like the average man on the street should be doing seems to be, hey, get involved in the underworld. (laughs) Find out what's going on and then embarrass the police with the information that you have gathered. I don't know that all the details of the plan are super clear to me. Like when it ends in this like uh, bloody shootout at the thing, I was kind of like, well, there was no other way. This wasn't going to work. Like, was he just going to go, hey, guys, I was kidding. I wasn't kidnapped. My bad. Like there was no way this was going to work out for him, really. I think the only question in that final scene is, is he going to die or not? Right. Is he like maybe if the movie this movie's already very cynical, as you can probably get from just what we've been saying so far. But is it cynical enough to just have him die? It actually takes it an extra level of cynicism where he does not die. But basically, he has to retract everything that he's done up to this point in a written statement. Either that or the police are threatening that's like, oh, we're going to send you to jail if you don't do that. And as we've already found in this movie, if he goes to jail, he'll probably be killed in jail. So it's like, here, sign this or we're going to fuck you over entirely. But like there is that kind of suggestion of 
hope. I, I guess hope is what you were supposed to take away. Is that how you would take that that sequence? So what happens? Just make just to make it very clear. Franco Nero signs this thing, absolving the police of any responsibility. But as he's leaving the police office, he sees someone yelling at a police officer about how they're lazy, just like he did earlier in the movie. And he smiles at the camera like, ha, maybe I did, you know, make a little influence on, on society. How, how do you think we're supposed to take that? I don't think it's I don't think it's actually his influence. I don't think that's right. why this guy's doing it. I think it's more um the the message of the movie is that people will do this. They'll be bad at it, they'll make a mess, they might get themselves killed. But if you don't enforce the law, if you don't enforce justice, people will seek their own justice. So like while he may have failed, maybe this guy is going to it's going to work out for him. Who knows, you know? And, and I guess that that's hopeful or or it's a or honestly it's a warning. You know what I mean? Which is maybe the same for this director, you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. We also are reading a lot into the movie. It's also very possible that they just wanted to end the movie with Franco Nero looking hot. Like any Anytime Franco Nero smiles into a camera, it's charming. Like, and so like the part of the reality is like there is a lot of ideology and politics in these in these movies, all of them. But also, a lot of directors did these movies because they were popular and they wanted to make money. So you kind of have to balance out. Like, there's no way to make any of these crime movies without some opinion about the crime wave and the violence around the crime wave that was sweeping Italy. This is based on how people are experiencing the real world. On the other hand, just because you have an ideology doesn't mean every decision you make making this movie is about ideology. And and sometimes as critics, we want to talk about it that way. But I don't know. To me, the ending doesn't say anything clear. And if he, in an interview, was like, yeah, I just wanted to end on Franco Nero's face, I'd be like, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. He's your, <laughs> he's your hot man. You know, you got to end. And he hasn't smiled almost the whole movie. So at least we get those, those, uh, those pearly whites at the end, you know? Uh, one of the things we've been clear about on this podcast is that we use Roberto Curti's book, Italian Crime Filmography, 1968 to 1980, as sort of a, um, a, a, a both a source and as a, uh, a guide for choosing the films for this. Uh, this is what he has to say about the ending of Street Law. He goes, all things considered, Street Law is much more interesting because of its flaws and imperfections rather than its blubbering quote unquote message. And for the unresolved ambiguity of the stop frame ending, with Franco Nero's eyes glimmering like Travis Bickles in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Most of all, the film is a showcase for Enzo Castellari's style as an action filmmaker. The director shoots such sequences like no other in Italy did at the time. Uh, Liam, I think that that's an interesting comparison uh, between Franco Nero's character and Travis Bickle. That, that would suggest that um, his reaction to the possibility of more violence uh, might not have kind of a positive slant, that there could be a suggestion that uh, it's more uh, the, the the promise of chaos to come. Yeah, I think that that's... I think if anything, the only part of that that's hopeful is the idea that people's spirit will give up, but the result of that is not necessarily a good thing. And I do think that at heart, the movie is convinced that given a chance... Like, the police could do a good job. They just don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas I think some of the other films we've watched as part of this podcast, it seems like the message of the movie is cops are a bad idea. <laughs> uh, I do want to give a quick shout-out to Giancarlo Prete, who plays Tommy in the film. He's sort of kind of like a – he only kind of starts showing up uh, midway through. He's the criminal that uh, Franco Nero's character uh, blackmails, and then they become friends. It, there is a – Maybe it's more of a modern point of view, and maybe it's because there's so little with Barbara Bach's character in this. But like they become very close, almost like brothers. Maybe you might even say more than brothers in the film. Did you see a suggestion of that as well, or is that just me reading again too far into things that they that that they become close, almost like lovers? Uh, I I think it's just supposed to be male friendship, Doug. I know yeah. male, I know male friendship makes you uncomfortable, but I mean uh, it's, it makes me so uncomfortable that it has to be love, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I mean I do think that I don't think that's a bad reading of the film, but I don't know that it was intentional. But it they certainly do, becomes very tender. They do uh, very much love each other. Yes, 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 yes absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and like a love that that comes out of such a strange scenario of one blackmailing the other. But yeah, there is a. Uh, yeah, and 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 I don't think it's too much to give away that Tommy's end is not necessarily the most uh, um, 
positive one uh, that Tommy ends up, well, I'll just spoil it. It doesn't really bother me that Tommy gets killed in the ending shootout. But like their, their final moments together are very tender in a way that, that I was not expecting, but shows, you know, a lot of care between these two characters. Well, I think it's also meant to suggest that Franco Nero is well aware of what the audience is, which is like, this is your fucking fault, man. Yeah, like you right. did this. And I think, I think that that final emotion is also representative of that, of him realizing like in his quest to become, justified like in, in his quest for revenge he's become a criminal as well basically you know uh and, and honestly i think tommy is drawn to him because of the strength and the courage though he he does act very scared a lot he still <laughs> has a certain amount of courage and tommy is also scared of these people so i think yeah. that's part of the attraction but also he sees that franco nero's character is becoming a criminal and i think he kind of likes that a little bit honestly yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I wonder what Franco Nero's response would be if I told him that he accidentally made a queer film in the mid-70s. <laughs> just curious about oh, that. Oh, man. Oh, man. Liam, any final thoughts on Street Law? I think it's one of the uh, stronger films we've watched, and it breaks the mold of some of the other things we've watched. You know, it's it's a little different than some of the other Polizia Tecci we've been able to cover. But I am worried that when we get into more movies that are direct ripoffs of this movie, that some of those are going to be very bad. We're, I, I think we're going to run into the Rambo effect where no one understood Rambo. <laughs> both, both, you know, the ripoffs and the people who made the sequels. That's <laughs> yeah, what no I was going to say. No right? one understood Rambo at all. You know, no one understood, Ro- you know, Stallone didn't understand Rocky even, or he chose not to, you know? So I'm worried, I'm worried we're going to get, we're going to get like in some of these ripoffs, we're going to get more of like a Cobra, and like yeah. that's fine I love Cobra but it's not the same thing at all though it is funny that you know in our very first episode of Wild in the Streets we were talking about our concerns regarding the ideologies that are going to be on display in these films and really it hasn't been as straightforward as that if anything I've been shocked and surprised by how how different all of these films tackle this same kind of issue, which at its core is always crime is rampant. How are you going to respond to it? We've seen it from the perspective of cops. We've seen vigilantes. We've seen it from the perspective of criminals, even. And it's it's it, it's not that it takes an even keel on all of it, but it's also, I mean, like Roberta Curdy says in his book, maybe it's it's uh, folly to kind of focus too much on the ideologies. But it's it, that's that's what we came at this material. Um, from and like that that's our whole idea of this show is to bring our own ideologies to what these movies are trying to say and sometimes they're a little inscrutable but also they're just very different than i was expecting well and i think that's been the joy like that's what's great is that it wasn't like we think it might be like this oh turns out we were right it's like the fact that each one is unique and interesting and has its own perspective and some of those uh some of the ways that it does stuff is surprising uh, is part of the fun, you know. Even the ones that we're gonna watch that might feel gross, <laughs> I'm still kind of looking forward to it because I like the variety that we've been able to experience. Speaking of variety, Liam, it is not a uh, a mistake that I brought up Charles Bronson several times on this episode. On the next episode of Wild in the Streets, we are going to be covering Sergio Salima's 1970 film Violent City, starring Charles Bronson and the great Telly Savalas and Shock. Jill Ireland is here as well. Charles Bronson in a Eurocrime movie. Liam, any uh, any uh, interest in that? I'm pretty stoked on it, yeah. I don't know anything about this movie, but I think it'll be fun to watch. I mean, I guess we'll see if it's going to be fun or not on the next episode of Wild in the Streets, 1970s Violent City. Liam, if people want to check out your recent work, by the way, I know you've got some uh, recent writing in the world. Where can people uh, find that and find you? Well, they can head to Cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. They'll find episodes of this show, episodes of Cinepunks, of Horror Business, of Twitch of the Death Nerve, of some of our new shows, including The Carnage Report and uh, The Shameless Picture Show. Uh, We got all kinds of stuff over there, uh, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, and uh, I do have a new installment of my uh, column, Out of the Box, where I just cover, basically, y'all, I just need a reason to watch all these box sets. I got a (laughs) bunch of box sets. I thought I was going to write about the box sets individually. It's a huge commitment to watch nine films and write one piece on nine films. It just seems like you're not really doing any of the movies justice. So uh, in this column, I'm just jumping around box set to box set, you know, really giving my ADHD service by 
changing my topics constantly. So I just wrote about uh, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, uh, which is the documentary on the uh, uh, folk horror set that came out from Severin. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, hopefully, uh, in the spirit of this podcast, I'm going to be covering soon a movie from the uh, Years of Lead uh, box set. Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? Yeah, Years of Lead. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, check it out. I'm, I'm also hoping to be doing some more writing, and we're looking for uh, – we're getting, I think, some coverage of the – Boston Underground Film Festival from Nick Spachek and some other folks are writing some stuff for us. So, you know, don't just check out the podcast over there. Check out the blog. Head over to the shop. Check out the T-shirts. And, of course, Doug, if they're just looking for the archives of our show, they can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. That's where we have uh, not just Wild in the Streets, but the variety of topics we cover from Praising Kane, our Carol Kane podcast, to uh, How Do You Do Fellow Kids, our Steve Buscemi show. Uh, just a bunch of topics because we also lack focus here at Cinema Smorgasbord. <laughs> uh, they can check out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. If they're looking for Cinepunks on social media, y'all, you can find C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and if you're looking for us on Twitter, it's oh at Cinema Smorg, S M O R G. Yeah, I guess if ADHD was a podcast, it would be Cinema Smorgasbord. <laughs> <laughs> but we always, you know, we always come back to our various themes. Um, as Leah mentioned, lots of a variety of podcasts over at Cinema Smorgasbord, including ones devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky, as well as our recently launched Paul Bartel podcast, our podcast devoted to. George Kennedy. There's just lots to check out there. You can also follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R U L Z. I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T I L L E Y. And if you like what you're hearing right now, why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice? Every little bit helps. And of course, the biggest help of all is to tell a friend, tell them that they must listen to Cinema Smorgasbord. Even if there's only one theme or topic that you're interested in, force it upon them, I say. But for now, Liam, we must close the Wild in the Streets bag. We must come back very soon with 1970s Violent City. Good night, everyone. Night, night.